We're looking this morning at the caveats, the warnings of the Olivet Discourse. The warnings of the Olivet Discourse, the caveats. Now, my own views, I believe, are illuminated by the Holy Spirit, but there are other people who have a close walk with Jesus who may not agree with every point. Uh, I share platforms regularly with people like Chuck Missler, with uh, Chuck Smith, uh, in a couple of weeks with uh, David Hawking, with Arnold Fruchtenbaum, with Dave Hunt. These are my closest friends in the ministry. Roger Oakland. We agree on 100% of the essentials. 90% of the non-essentials. Non-essentials are matters for discussion, for prayer, maybe even for debate, but not for division. Essentials are non-negotiable. Before we go any further, I'd like to look at what is the difference. Where will you divide? There are always four things that are non-negotiable. Four things that are never negotiable. Christology Pneumatology, triunity. If someone does not believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, there is no basis for unity. If someone does not believe in the personhood of the Holy Spirit, if they just say he's a force or a power, like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Or if they attribute to the Holy Spirit properties or attributes the Bible doesn't. Things like you saw in Toronto and Pensacola. The fruit of the Spirit is always in Greek, ekrete, self-control, we looked at the other night. When you see people out of control saying it's the Holy Spirit, bad business. Okay. Grounds for division. Thirdly, if someone rejects one God in three persons. I do not insist on the term Trinity. I have no reason to. It was invented by one of the church fathers called Tertullian, Trinitas. It's simply a word we use to express a biblical truth. Whether or not you use that word is irrelevant to me. The doctrine of one God in three persons, however, is biblically incontrovertible. And if anyone deviates from it, there's no basis for unity. I'm talking about people like Tommy Tenney, T.D. Jakes. If people do not have a clear belief in one God and three persons, that's the first thing. If they have a wrong view of God. A wrong view of God. Finally, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of Israel. There's no other true God. One God with one name. Right now you have youth of admission. And you've got people like Danny Lehman promoting the idea of youth of admission that it's okay to call Jesus and to call God by the name of the Hawaiian volcano god, Pele. You've got people saying, you call him Allah, we call him Yahweh. Allah is a generic Arabic term for God, but Allah is also the name of the Arabian moon god. 
You call him Christ, we call him Krishna. You have people saying this now. There was a book by Peter Kreeft, again, called Ecumenical Jihad, where Kreeft, with the support of Chuck Colson and J.I. Packer, was saying we have to have ecumenical union with Islam to morally redeem society. Where Buddha and we saw Buddha and Muhammad in heaven. When you see this kind of thing, there's only one God. Paul uses the word Damanoi. Moses uses the word Shadim. Other gods are demons. They don't even exist. They're just demons. Hare Krishna is a demon. Allah is a demon. These are demons. What Duke the Mission are saying and what Crete and, and Colson and these guys are saying, this stuff is demonic. If people have a wrong doctrine of God in their Christology, in their pneumatology, in their understanding of triunity, or if they are calling Yahweh by a different name, look out. Now this was an issue in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word for husband, master, and owner is Baal. Baal. Hosea, God tells Israel, your Baal, your husband is your maker. Israel was to be Yahweh's bride, as the church is the bride of Christ. Yahweh is Israel's Baal. But the Canaanites had their own Baal, Baal of Shemaim. And even their Baal even had a resurrection myth that he rose from the dead every spring. Looks pretty close. Well, you call him Baal, we call him Baal. Must be the same Baal. If there's two people named Robert Jones in the same telephone book, does that mean they're both the same person? Because Allah is a generic name of God, it is also a particular name of a moon god. Does it mean it's the same God? <coughs> now, in America, the most obvious example is the United States is where the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints. In the Bible... Jesus is monogenes, the only begotten of the Father. The Mormon Jesus is the half-brother of Satan. They have a different Jesus. Yet you've got people like Ravi Zacharias, Fuller Seminary, that Richard Mao, Craig Hazen from Biola, jumping in bed with the Mormons. Saying that uh, people like Dave Hunt have borne false witness against them for saying they have a different God, a different Jesus. <coughs> Dave Hunt told the truth. They have a different Jesus. Once you see these things being compromised, a Ravi Zacharias, a Chuck Colson, put an X to it. These people, we have no fellowship with such people. Once the person of the one true God is compromised, there's no other name of the heaven by which men can be saved. With, well, so there's only one God. It was the first commandment. I'm the Lord your God. You have no other gods before me. When you see people willing to accommodate this, when you see what Fuller Seminary is doing, what Mao is doing, what Ravi Zacharias is playing with, 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 with Colson, have nothing to do with such people. They are part of the apostasy of the end. This is the first thing we have nothing to do with. This is always the basis for division. Not that you have a right to divide. We must divide. Must. These people are either backslidden or they were never saved to begin with. Either way, they're false brethren. Second, second basis for division.
unrepentant immorality. I'm not here to throw stones, I'm here to state facts. Some people have wondered why I will refuse to do conferences with somebody like Cal Lindsay, even though I agree with most of what he writes. I'm just telling you the facts. It's public fact. You can go to California, look at the court records for yourself. Cal Lindsay is on his fourth marriage as a Christian. God hates divorce. You divorce a Christian wife or a Christian husband and marry somebody else, unless you're the aggrieved party, you've committed adultery, you're living in an adulterous marriage. There are people who are standing in pulpits today who are living in adultery in God's eyes. They've divorced a Christian wife or a Christian husband and the Christian wife and they've married somebody else without any biblical grounds. It wasn't like the unbeliever left. It was something that happened before they were saved. I mean two Christians getting divorced. This is immorality. It's unrepentant immorality. We should have nothing to do with any church that will allow such a thing. There's no unity when there's unrepentant immorality. Without holiness, no man will see God. There's a big difference between dropping your cross and throwing it away. Falling into sin, sadly we all do it and we'll continue to struggle with our flesh and the old nature until Jesus comes. But when you say, I can continue to live this way, I can continue to shock up with my girlfriend, I can continue to live with somebody after I've been divorced, this is just not biblical. Unrepentant immorality, that's it. Now, it must be something the Word of God defends as a model. Okay? It must be something the Word of God defends as a model. I live in England. In England, I have no problem taking the Lord's Supper with wine, alcoholic wine. No problem. My wife and children, they're Israeli Jews. We have Passover, we have Kiddush Shabbat, a little bit of wine. No problem, no problem. But when I go to Ireland or Scotland, where alcohol is a big problem, I'm going to take grape juice. Not because I have a problem with wine, but because so many people in Ireland do. All things are lawful, not all things are helpful. Okay? I'm not saying if you drink wine, you're living immorally. There are some people who would say that. The Bible doesn't. <laughs> Anything not done in faith is sin. It's got to be something the Word of God says is wrong for everybody to draw the X. Not that Brother Sylvester smoked a cigar on his honeymoon or whatever. That's not it. Not that I'm defending smoking cigars or that I'm condemning Brother Sylvester. <laughs> Thirdly, one basis of doctrinal authority. If somebody tries to make anything other than the Word of God alone, a basis of doctrinal authority. The Lord showed me. 
Well, the church fathers said. Well, Augustine said. Well, the papal encyclical decreed. Excellent. We can speak among ourselves about the proper interpretation of biblical doctrine, the proper understanding and application of it. But there can be no discussion as to the fact that it is the Word of God alone that is the basis for it. If somebody has a different basis of spiritual doctrinal authority other than Scripture, there's no basis for union. Finally, the gospel. If an angel of God comes with another gospel, let him be accursed. Anathema. How is sin atoned for? How can fallen men and women be justified before a holy, perfect God who demands holiness, who says, be holy as I am holy? The only way we can be holy as God is holy is if the righteousness is imputed. God takes our sin and puts it on his son and crucifies him for what we did in order to take his righteousness and put it on us. And Then through repentance and faith in him, God raises him from the dead to give us eternal life. Our victory is in him, our righteousness is in him. If somebody has another gospel other than justification by faith, salvation by grace. If you believe you're saved by sacraments, if they believe they're saved by good works, if they believe they're saved by any kind of a ritual, does the blood of Christ cleanse from all sin, or do you atone in purgatory for your own? Social gospel? If anybody has a different means of justification, he was a wonderful humanitarian. There was a wonderful humanitarian in Albert Schweitzer, but he was theologically liberal. How can you say Albert Schweitzer wasn't a Christian? Well, ultimately only God's his judge, but from what he wrote, he was not born again. All of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Saved Christians do not do good works to get saved. Saved Christians do good works because they have been saved. Our ministry runs orphanages in Africa for little AIDS babies, dying of AIDS, HIV orphans in in black Africa. That's a cornerstone of, of what the Lord's called us to do. We don't do that in order to get to heaven. We do that because Jesus told us to do it, because we're already on our way to heaven. We do good works because we've been saved, not to get saved. Social gospel, sacramental gospel, any kind of other gospel, put an X to it. Any of those four things, there is absolutely no basis for unity. None. These are people who are at best in fundamental ignorance or they're false brothers, false sisters. If any of those four things are going, they're false. Paul calls them so-called brothers in 1 Corinthians 5. He doesn't call them brothers, they're so-called brothers. Now, there are secondary issues. Secondary issues are issues which are important, 
but they are not the things which are most important. Okay? It's like this. I am premillennial for certain reasons. I'm convinced premillennialists. I can explain why. We have tapes explaining why. But there are people who love the Lord who are not premillennial. I would not say if somebody is not premillennial, they're not my brother. I'd say that they are misguided on that point, but I wouldn't say they're not saved, they're not my brother. I believe firmly in believer's baptism. The idea of sprinkling a baby and calling it Christian is absurd. We're baptized into his death. You wouldn't put a, a, a baby in a casket and bury it if it wasn't dead. We don't baptize one if it's not dead. God has no grandchildren, only children. It's ridiculous practice. But there have been people in the history of the church who love Jesus, who hold to this unbiblical practice. I cannot say that these people are not saved. Many of them aren't. Sprinkling babies breeds unbelief. You put this idea in people because they've been baptized, they're Christians when they're not. It's a dangerous and an unbiblical practice. But I would not say that there are not people who hold this belief, who don't love the Lord and are unsaved. They're misguided on that point, in my view. Okay. Now... I believe, firmly, in the autonomy of the local congregation. My understanding of Scripture tells me that a church should, a movement should only be a fellowship of fellowships. It should not be hierarchical and centralized. It should be a fellowship of fellowships with common beliefs. I don't believe denominationalism is a biblical model of ecclesiastical polity, church government. I don't think there's any scriptural basis. <clears throat> don't believe it. But I know some people who are saved, who are in denominational churches. I cannot say such people are not my brethren, even though they don't share my views on the autonomy of the local congregation. Okay. So if you have a secondary issue, you can say, you're my brother, you're my sister, but I don't know if I can be in the same church as you are. I would prefer to be in a church that is premillennial, that doesn't practice infant baptism. Okay. But I'm not saying that those people are not our brethren. I'm not saying I wouldn't be able to cooperate with them on things like opposing abortion, or evangelism, or getting child pornography off the internet, or whatever. I'm not saying I don't have common ground with them and I won't stand with them on issues in our common interest. I'm not saying I can't fellowship with them. I'm simply saying I could not be a member of a church like that unless there was nowhere else to go, perhaps. But I'm not saying they're not our brethren. I am in no sense a Calvinist. I'm anti-Calvinist. But there are moderate Calvinists, people like John MacArthur, who for the most part I agree with on most issues and generally respect, even though we part company when it comes to his Calvinism and his cessationism, we part company definitely. I couldn't be a member of this church, but I'm not saying he's not my brother. Those are the secondary issues. 
Now, sometimes when you get a secondary issue, it's really a primary issue. Because they're arriving at that doctrine through some means other than Scripture. If somebody has an off-the-wall doctrine, it doesn't matter what it is, if they're arriving at that doctrine on the basis of some tradition or subjective revelation instead of Scripture, the secondary doctrinal difference is only a symptom of something more fundamentally wrong. Well, God showed me there's no millennium. God showed me I should have the, my, my son baptized. No. That issue is not secondary now. Now it becomes primary. You understand? Very often, when you see people going into crazy doctrine, it used to be solid. When you see people going into crazy doctrine, people used to be solid going into something crazy. Very often, they're going off morally. When people go off morally, their doctrine tends to go off. Okay? Once people go off morally, their doctrine tends to go off. They have to begin trying to find ways to justify the way they're living or what they're doing or something like that. Okay? Very often, wrong doctrine is a symptom of something wrong morally. So even though you're looking at a secondary issue, make sure it's only a secondary issue. Make sure the secondary issue is not a symptom of a primary issue. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? Make sure it is purely a secondary issue and not a secondary issue which is really symptomatic of something much more fundamental. Then you have tertiary issues. I do conferences all the time with people like David Hawking and uh, Chuck Missler. We're all premillennial. Okay. We all believe there's a rapture. However, those guys believe Jesus can come tonight. I believe Jesus can come tonight for me. I believe Jesus can come tonight for you. But the best I can understand Scripture, I do not believe the rapture and resurrection can happen until we know who the Antichrist is. Some of my closest friends disagree. Others agree. Among Calvary Chapel pastors, officially, most of them, officially all of them, are pre-tribulational. When you talk to them privately, you'll find that there's quite a variance of opinion. <laughs> uh, and many are non-committal. They're all committal that there's a millennium, they're all committal that there's a rapture, but the timing of it, this is a tertiary issue. This is a matter for discussion. Now, if somebody says there is no rapture, now i got a problem. They're rejecting something plainly taught in Scripture. But as to when it is, let's discuss it. Let's pray about it. Let's read about it. Let's fellowship about it. But let's not fight about it. At a time when there's people denying the rapture, <coughs> we can't afford to be at each other's throats over tertiary issues. Finally, on the matter of immorality, you've got this thing of the once saved, always saved versus eternal security, the eternal security people 
versus the people who take on a minion position. If you want my views, I can tell you, but it's not our subject today. Someone like Arnold Fruchtenbaum, you know who Arnold Fruchtenbaum is? No. Arnold Fruchtenbaum is the leading Messianic Jewish Bible sponsor in the USA, probably. Okay, let's say somebody like, uh, I don't know, Dave Hunt. You have somebody who is a Christian who has now gone into immorality. They're not living a godly life. They're shacking up with the girlfriend. They've left their husband. They're getting drunk. They're on drugs. They used to seemingly be a Christian. Somebody like John MacArthur would say, they were never saved to begin with. Or if they were saved to begin with, they're going to be convicted by the Holy Spirit and come back. I would say, maybe you're right. Maybe they were never saved. And believe me, the charismatic movement is loaded with people who were never saved. Alpha courses produce people who were never saved. A lot of these people put their hands up and go forward at Billy Graham meetings and this. A lot of them were never saved. I've done door-to-door evangelism in England so many times. I went forth to the Billy Graham meeting and nothing ever happened. They were never saved. Maybe they were never saved. Maybe you're right. But if they were saved, they don't have the assurance of salvation now. So John MacArthur would say, one, they're not saved and never were. I would say, either they never were saved, but if they were, they're not saved now, lest they repent. Either way, we both agree they're not saved now. Either way, we both agree they need to repent. (laughs) So we're both saying they're not saved now, and and they need to repent. Whether or not they were ever saved to begin with is tertiary. It only becomes an issue when you get into licentiousness. Well, I know he's living with his girlfriend and he's on drugs, but he's still saved. He made a profession of faith when he was 11. (laughs) When you have people saying that person still has the assurance of salvation, then it becomes an issue on the Calvinistic side. On the Armenian side, it's where people get into the extremes. Now you're saved, now you're not. (laughs) How many times do you have to sin to lose your salvation? It's not like that. When the Holy Spirit left Saul, he didn't know it left him. That's just the point. You don't know when that happens. Okay. Eternal security is a biblical truth understood biblically. It is true in two ways. First of all, eternity is outside of time. In the book of Revelation, John saw it already happening. In Ephesians, we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We take that by faith, but John saw it already happening in eternity. So in eternity, it's already happening. Therefore, there is eternal security, if you can understand what I mean. Secondly, if you remain in Christ, you're eternally secure in Christ. That's how Chuck Smith puts it. In those ways, there is eternal security. 
In my view, eternal security does not mean unconditional once saved, always saved. Backsliders must repent to have the assurance of salvation. Having said that, the Holy Spirit will go after them. God does not, will convict them. God does not save people to lose them. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Remember that kid went into, that young guy went into an incestuous relationship? He was given over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his soul would be saved. Okay? God will actually kill people or allow Satan to kill them. God will actually reduce somebody's longevity rather than see them be lost. He leaves the 99 for the 1. The Lord will go to great lengths to get a backslider back, assuming they were really saved to begin with. Which is another issue. So it's not this, now you're saved, now you're not saved. That's, that's crazy on one extreme. It's not like that. There's a biblical balance. Now, if you take a John MacArthur position, I don't fully agree with you. He would not fully agree with me. But, I, but on the main issues, somebody's living immorally, they're not saved now. You say they were never saved, I say maybe they were never saved, but if they were, they aren't now. We both agree they're not saved now, and we both agree they need to repent. Whether or not they were ever saved to begin with is academic. It only becomes a problem when immorality is tolerated in the church. When you let people take the Lord's Supper who are living immorally, that's a problem. Falsehoods don't even eat with such a one, making the Lord's Supper. Then it becomes an issue. Once moral standards are compromised. So, I just wanted to preface... This morning, by laying those things out, we all will agree on the essentials. We will agree on most of the non-essentials. If you have a different point of view, I'm willing to consider it. Only thing I ask is that you prayerfully consider the point of view I put across. It's a thing of fellowship. We're on the same side in this. We have the same goal, the same Lord. We have the same gospel, one faith, one baptism. There'll be no primary issue, no fundamental issue, where any of us will disagree if you're born again. And if, 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 if Calvary Chapel's your church and you hold to the Calvary Chapel doctrine, there'll be no essential issue where any of us will disagree on anything fundamental. Nothing worth fighting or splitting over. Things worth discussing? Yes. Yes. But remember, even premillennialists have different views of premillennialism. Even pre-tribulationists have differing views of pre-tribulationism. So there's always scope for discussion in the right spirit with the right attitude. With this in view, open with me to the Olivet Discourse. Look at Matthew 24, please. And Jesus came out from the temple, and he was going away with his disciples came to him to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left down upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting in the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, 
Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? We have to understand that in the Western Gentile way of looking at prophecy, it is different than the way the early Jewish Christians of the first centuries would have understood prophecy. Okay? I'll begin by talking about hermeneutics. How you interpret the Bible, what happens when you interpret the Bible. Okay? It's very obvious, looking at the way the New Testament handles the Old, that the apostles handled Scripture differently than they teach you to handle it in Dallas Theological Cemetery or Seminary. Since we're in Matthew, let's look at Matthew chapter 2. King Herod dies, verse 15, and was there until the death of Herod what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet being fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. He quotes from the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, with our Western Protestant exegesis, let's turn to Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. By Western Protestant grammatical historical exegesis, the text read in context is talking about the exodus of the Jews. Liberal scholars from Oxford, from Harvard, higher critics, say this proves the New Testament is not to be taken literally. This proves the apostles loosely handled Scripture and they read meanings into things that weren't there and applied them as they wanted. This is talking about the Exodus. They apply it to Jesus. Jewish rabbis say, you shouldn't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Just look at the New Testament. Look at the Gospel. How can you believe that? He quotes Hosea out of context. This was written by crazy people. This is talking about the Exodus, not talking about Jesus. You see what I'm saying? The text read in context is not talking about Jesus Christ with the Western approach to interpretation. Look with me, please, to the book of Second Chronicles. Well, you can look at Kings, but let's look at Second Chronicles 13, verse 22. The rest of the acts of Aviah and his ways and his words are written in the treaties of the prophet Edo. That word treaties is a bad translation. The word in Hebrew is not treaties. I don't know how the King James puts it. What does the King James say? Does anyone have the King James? Verse 22 of Second Chronicles 13. Annals. It's not annals. Mistranslation. In Hebrew, the word is, both here and in Kings, midrash. In the... Midrash. 
Midrash is inquiring into the text using the methods of exegesis the ancient Jews would have used. It's not out of context. They simply viewed context differently than we do. The Roman Catholic Church Gnosticized Scripture with this census plenia. The Pope said it means this with some subjective mystical meaning. This became barbaric in the Middle Ages, particularly under Aquinas. It was known as medieval scholasticism. It got really crazy. The Reformers were influenced by 16th century humanist scholarship. They wanted to go back to the original plain meaning of the original Greek and Hebrew. When they did that, they rediscovered certain things. They rediscovered that the word metanoia, Luther learned this from a French humanist called Methodure, metanoia does not mean to do penance or to go to confession as the Catholic Church was teaching. It meant to repent. So instead of reading the Vulgate, which most people couldn't read anyway in Latin, they went back to the original meaning of the original Greek or Hebrew, and they saw what it meant. Well, this began with somebody called Erasmus. Erasmus was the main person, not Luther. This opened the way for people to rediscover the gospel. It was right in what it affirmed. It was wrong in what it omitted. You've all heard about throwing the baby out with the proverbial bathwater, haven't you? Somebody's counterfeiting $50 bills. Quick, take all your $50 bills and burn them. It's illogical. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. <clears throat> so because you have people who don't know what Midrash is, like the liberals, like John Spach, corrupting it, uh, uh, Spong, corrupting it, or because the Roman Catholic Church allegorized Scripture out of context to give it crazy meanings, they actually said the Babylonian captivity is the 70 years the Pope spent in Avignon, France. We'll have no kind of allegorical or figurative or typological interpretation. The baby goes out with the bathwater. What is the rule of Midrash that prevented this from happening? Midrash looked at Scripture in terms of a peshit and a pesher. A peshit interpretation, a peshit, comes from the Hebrew word pashut, meaning simple, simple. The simple, straightforward meaning of Hosea 11.1 1 is about the exodus of the Jews. Matthew applies it to Jesus. That is the Pesher. In Midrash, you must establish the Peshet before you establish the Pesher. You must understand the plain meaning before you can understand the deeper meaning. Okay? In Gnosticism, mystical revelation, forget about the Peshet, just look for a Peshet. 
Just look for some hidden cryptic message in it. <laughs> that is heretical. You must first establish the clear, plain meaning. You can never base a doctrine on a pesher. You can only base a doctrine on the peshet. The pesher illuminates the doctrine on a deeper level. Now we'll explain how this works in prophecy. First we'll do the background of the way the first century Christians would have understood prophecy. Then in the next session we'll look at the Olivet Discourse. In a seminary they'll tell you there are four ways to look at prophecy. They will say there is preterism. Preterism. Preterism means it already happened. There are two kinds of preterists. There are the liberal ones and there are the conservative evangelical ones. The liberal ones say these things were written after the fact made to look like a prophecy. Somebody came along and wrote the Bible and said Jesus was going to be crucified. It was written after he was crucified or after it happened to make it look like it was predicted. But it was really written after the fact. I won't bore you with it, but the theological term is an ex interpolation. <laughs> an ex interpolation. Daniel couldn't have known the future like that. Therefore, Daniel didn't write it. Somebody came along after the time of Daniel and wrote it and put Daniel's name on it to make it seem like a prediction. That's what the liberals say. But then you have people who claim to be evangelicals, particularly Reconstructionist Calvinists. These people are different. They would say, these things all happened in 70 AD and have no future meaning. Jesus speaking of the last days, you know, one stone will be thrown down upon another. It all happened in 70 AD. There'll be no Antichrist, no falling away, no regathering of Israel, no great tribulation. The church is going to go forth in victory and conquer the whole world for Christ before he comes. This is post-millennialism. These prophecies already happened. That's preterism. The main advocates of preterism in this country, among the charismaniacs, are people like Rick Godwin in, in Texas. Among the Calvinists, it's the late Ralphus Rush Dooney. D. James Kennedy, Greg Bonson, Gary North, David Shilton, these people. These are preterists. This stuff already happened. It has no future meaning. Don't worry about it. Well, the hour of the discourse is not just Matthew 24 and 25. 24, it's 24 and 25. Did Jesus separate the sheep from goats in 70 A.D.? Did he give people their eternal reward based on what they did with their talents in 70 A.D.? Of course he didn't. Moreover, Jesus said, this great tribulation will be so unique, nothing this bad has ever happened before, and nothing as bad will ever happen again. The events of 70 A.D. are astounding. But far worse things have happened both to the Jews and to the church since 70 A.D. Far worse things have happened to both the Jews and the church since 70 A.D. They cannot possibly be right in what they're saying. The Holocaust of the 30s and 40s was worse than 70 A.D. Bar Kokhba's rebellion 
in the second century was worse than 70 AD. It was very bad what happened in 70 AD, but it mainly happened in one location. This is something that's going to happen globally. Don't listen to these people, these crazy extreme Calvinists, these Reconstructionists. It's crazy. Jesus said nothing like this has ever happened and nothing like this will ever happen again. Well, worse things have happened since 70 AD. They cannot possibly be right. They're speaking absolute nonsense, prima facie foolishness. That's preterism. The second way that people look at this, and again, it depends on what seminary or Bible college you go to, what they teach you, usually, which denomination or whatever, is historicism. This was the view of choice of the Protestant reformers. Oh, the book of Revelation is prophetic, but it's not about anything specific. It's ongoing. Every pope is the Antichrist. The papacy is an Antichrist institution, I agree. But every pope is an Antichrist. We shouldn't look for these two guys at the end of the world. They're just pictures of the kinds of people that have existed all through history. One political, one religious. And so throughout the Holy Roman Empire, the Dark Ages, you had the Pope and you had the Emperor. And that's how they looked at it. This is historicism. Then there is polemicism. Because Luther didn't like the book of Revelation because he couldn't understand it, a lot of Lutherans are polemicists. From the Greek word poeo, what you do, but it sounds like poetry. It has the same meaning. Poemicism. It's not to be taken literally, even though it's God's word. It's simply poetry to encourage the church during times of persecution. That there is an eternal destiny, that Jesus will one day return. There is a heaven. It's simply poetry to encourage us. It should not be taken literally concerning events on the earth as such. This is polemicism. The Lutherans have a leaning towards this. But Luther didn't like the Epistle of James. He didn't like Revelation. He didn't like the Epistle of James because he didn't understand what James meant by works. He confused works with works of the law. Finally, there is what most people, well, guess what all people in Calvary chapels would believe. The Hal Lindsey line, the Barry Smith line, futurism. That Jesus spoke of end-time events. He was echoing and expounding and expanding upon things in the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Zechariah. Things about the last days. The book of Revelation has a future meaning. It's for a specific time in history. Those are the four ways the church would look upon, or church looks upon, end-times prophecy, eschatology. There are four ways. The question is, which of these four ways did Jesus look at? What of these four ways did the apostles look at? It's not that the apostles and Jesus didn't look at, believe any of them. What the Western church does not largely understand is that they believe all of them. They are not mutually exclusive. Let's begin with, out of Egypt I called my son. In 
The Western view of, of prophecy of the end times, eschatology, there's a prediction and a fulfillment. That is not the way the early Jewish Christians looked upon prophecy. It was not a prediction and a fulfillment. It was a pattern, a motif. So, it begins with Abraham. He's the father of all who believed. In Egypt, God judges Pharaoh, doesn't he? Abraham takes the wealth of Egypt and comes out of Egypt and goes to Israel, the promised land. Abraham comes out of Egypt. God judges a king. Then Abraham's physical descendants, his anthropological descendants, the Jews, God judges Pharaoh. They take the wealth of Egypt and go to Israel. They come out of Egypt. God judges a wicked king. In our salvation, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, Egypt is a picture of the world. Pharaoh is a picture of Satan, the god of the world. The Egyptians deified him. And as Moses made a covenant with blood and sprinkled it on the people, so Jesus makes a covenant with blood of the Lamb, sprinkles it on us. And as Moses took them out of Egypt, through the water, into the promised land, is the way Jesus brings us out of the world, through baptism, into heaven. And our salvation... We come out of Egypt. But they sing the song of Moses in the book of Revelation. I will sing unto the Lord, for he is triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. In the rapture and resurrection, we come out of Egypt. That's why they brought Joseph's bones with them out of Egypt. The dead in Christ rise first, we come out together. Pharaoh's magicians counterfeited the miracles of Moses and Aaron. That's what Jonathan John Brace did. That's the way the Antichrist and false prophet are going to counterfeit the miracles of Jesus and his witnesses. We will come out of Egypt in the rapture, out of the world. Those same judgments you see in the book of Revelation on Egypt that are commemorated in the Jewish Passover. Hoshech, darkness, dam, blood, Svadaya, and the frogs, and so forth. Those judgments happen to the whole planet in the book of Revelation. One is a picture of the other. In the rapture and resurrection, we come out of Egypt. God judges the God of this world, Satan, Antichrist. So, Abraham comes out. The children of Israel come out. We come out. Then we all come out. Jesus fits the pattern, you understand? He comes out of Egypt. God judges a wicked king, and he comes out of Egypt into Israel. He just fits the pattern. In Midrash... It is not a prediction and a fulfillment. It is a pattern of multiple fulfillments. But each fulfillment is a type or a shadow revealing some aspect of the final one, the ultimate one. Okay? The exodus of the Jews reveals something about the rapture. Our salvation in 1 Corinthians 10 reveals something about the rapture, about the ultimate. What happened to Jesus out of Egypt? Remember Revelation 12? The dragon was trying to kill the baby coming out of the woman and the baby's protected? Well, this comes back in Revelation. Jesus coming out of Egypt that teaches something about the rapture. It's a pattern. Let's look at another example of this. 
Look at Matthew 24. When you see the abomination of desolations spoken through Daniel the prophet, this already happened 160 years earlier with Antiochus Epiphanes. In the book of Daniel, Daniel predicted, it's recorded in the Apocrypha, in the book of Maccabees, Antiochus set up an image of the Greek god Zeus. Now Zeus is a corruption of the Hebrew, of the Greek Theos, God. They identified him with the planet Jupiter, and they gave, Antiochus gave Zeus his own features, facial features, and he sets it up in the temple, and he slaughters a pig on the altar in the temple. The Maccabees, as Daniel predicted in Daniel 11, the Maccabees lead a guerrilla war, and they liberate the temple, and they rededicate it. This is the Jewish feast of rededication, called Hanukkah. It's what Jesus celebrated in John 10. He says, he says it was the feast of dedication, that was Hanukkah. So Jesus knew this already happened. He celebrated Hanukkah himself, according to John 10. Every Jew knew it, but Jesus certainly knew it. He celebrated Hanukkah in John 10. Jesus took something that already happened and said it's going to happen again. You understand? So we have this idea of the abomination. Well, in 70 AD, when the Romans set up pagan ensigns where the Holy of Holies had been and began to worship it, the early Christians thought that was an abomination of desolations. In the second century, the Emperor Hadrian levels the Temple Mount and builds a temple to Jupiter. Again, Zeus, the Avelina Capitolina. That's an abomination of desolations. In the fourth century, Constantine's nephew, Julian the Apostate, tries to rebuild the temple. And all these mysterious fires and things happen recorded in history. Well, that was an abomination of desolations. Today, on the Dome of the Rock, the Mosque of Omar, on the Temple Mount, it's not really a mosque, but they call it that, it says a quotation from the Surah in the Koran. God has no son. Allah is not begotten, neither does he beget. Now, we're told in First John that that which denies the father-son relationship is antichrist. There's an abomination of desolation on the Temple Mount as we speak. It's still there. It's always been each one of these is the picture of the ultimate fulfillment. In other words, to the Western mind, once more, prophecy is a prediction and a fulfillment. To the ancient Jewish minds, it was a pattern. So Jesus took something that already happened. Abomination of desolations. He used preterism. <laughs> But it's always happened throughout history. There's been many abominations on that Temple Mount. There's still one up there right now, as we speak. Historicism. John did write Revelation during the persecution of the Emperor Domitian. He was the last apostle alive. The early Christians expected Jesus was going to come in their lifetime. And he didn't come. They said, what's happening here? So the last apostle gets the vision. Well, polemicism is true. But each of these historical fulfillments is a picture of the final one. We have to understand all of the historical fulfillments to understand the final one. 
It's like a pie. When you put each piece of the pie in, you get the whole pie. It's like a children's puzzle. Well, the more pieces in, then you get the whole picture. Prophecy is pattern. Western exegesis follows this. It's either this, 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 or this. You're either a preterist, a historicist, a poemist, or a futurist. This is all nonsense invented by the ignorance of the Gentile church. It is all rubbish. It is not either. It's not which are you. It's all of it. In other words, these views are right in what they affirm, wrong in what they deny. I'm a historicist. Futurism's not true. I'm a futurist. Historicism's not true. No, it is all true. The New Testament handles the Old Testament when it says, this is that. This is what was fulfilled by the prophet, spoken by the prophet. That's called a formula citation. A formula citation. The New Testament handles the Old Testament exactly the way the Dead Sea Scrolls handle the Old Testament. There is nothing out of context in the way the New Testament handles the Old. It's exactly what the other Jews of the time did. The Dead Sea Scrolls and the Gospels, like a hand in glove, it perfectly adds up when you understand Matthew, the apostles, were using Midrash. Unfortunately, our theological cemetery seminaries are staffed by well-meaning professors who are always trying to squeeze what was originally a Jewish faith into the container of 16th century Protestantism. They're going back to the 16th century. We have to go back to the 1st century. You understand what I'm saying? The church is always going back to the reformers or it's going back to the church fathers. Clear that out of the way. Go back to the 1st century. Then you can look at what these other guys said. Unless we understand this idea of the pattern and of the pesher, we will never understand things like the book of Revelation. We will never understand the return of Christ beyond a superficial level. Okay? I'm sorry if this sounds boring, but you've got to know this to go any further. You've got to do arithmetic before you can do algebra. You've got to do algebra before you can do calculus. You just can't go out and do a logarithm, or you just can't go out and do a derivative. You have to be able to go out first and know how to do a polynomial. Before you can do a polynomial or a quadratic equation, you have to know how to count. You've got to begin at the beginning. Same as mathematics, same as anything. Well, let's go further. Literary structure. John wrote the Gospel of John. But John also wrote Revelation. But then we have Genesis. Genesis, John, John. To understand prophecy, think this way. God declares the end from the beginning. 
in the book of Revelation, you see something you see in Joseph's vision of the woman with the stars, don't you? In the book of Revelation, you've got a dragon and a serpent. Because in Genesis, you've got a dragon and a serpent. Remember, the, the serpent was cursed. Now it was going to crawl on its stomach. Before that, obviously, it was a biped or a quadruped. It walked. That's why dinosaurs became extinct. They're not 65 million years old. Come with me to the Taranga Zoo in Sydney, Australia. I will show you a Kamada dragon. It can be up to 22 feet long. Nose to tail. And I challenge any Darwinist to get into the cage with this carnivorous lizard, the Kamada dragon. After that thing takes a chunk out of you, you won't believe they became extinct 65 million years ago. Every culture in the world, American Indians, Mexico, and Mexico, and in the Middle East, they all have dragons in their, China, they all have dragons in their culture. These things are not that old. We have a dragon and a serpent in Revelation because you have one in Genesis. Okay. In Revelation, the blood of the martyrs cries out. In Genesis, Abel's blood, your brother's blood cries out. Remember Jesus called Abel the first martyr in Matthew 23? The blood of all the martyrs from the time of Abel will be upon you. Okay. Creation. New creation. Recreation. Think in terms of creation, new creation, recreation. Okay? Everything else fills it in. So you have a literary contrast between Revelation and Genesis. You've got the 12 sons of Jacob in Revelation uh, 7 and Revelation 14. Genesis 49, you've got the 12 sons of Jacob. It's the same stuff. You understand? Now, in the first century, at the end of the first century, a Jewish Christian reading John's Gospel, he would have read it very differently than we do. Some of you may know this from our tapes. I know some of you listen. A Jewish Christian reading John's Gospel in the first century, he would have said John's Gospel particularly John 1-4, to is a midrash on the book of Genesis. He would have said John talks about the new creation. The new creation narrative, the new creation story in John, is a midrash on the creation in Genesis. Adam hears God walking in the garden. God walks the earth in the creation in Genesis. Oh, the word becomes flesh. The Word was God. God walks the earth in the new creation, in John. Okay. God separates the light from dark in the creation, in Genesis, doesn't he? John 1, the scotia, the darkness, the, the light came and the darkness did not overcome it or comprehend it. God separates the light from dark in the new creation, in John. Same as in Genesis. 
The spirit moves on the water in Genesis, brings forth the creation, doesn't it? So the spirit was moving on the face of the deep. Spirit moves on the water, brings forth the creation in Genesis. Spirit moves on the water and brings forth the new creation in John. Born of water and of spirit. Okay? In the creation in Genesis, you have the small light and the great light. In the creation in John, you've got John the Baptist, Yohanan Hamadbil, the small light, and Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the great light. In the creation in Genesis, God does a miracle with water. But what day does he do the miracle with water in the creation narrative in Genesis? Well, he does it on the third day. <coughs> so on the third day, God does a miracle with water in the creation. In the new creation, John chapter 2, verse 1, at the wedding at Cana, it was the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. God does a miracle on the third day with water. Okay? Jesus changes the water to wine, changes flesh to spirits, showing the relationship between the covenants. That's why there were six jugs, a number of men. <coughs> okay. God began his first plan for man with a wedding in the creation. God's first plan for man commenced with a wedding. Adam Vahava, Adam and Eve. So Jesus begins his ministry at a wedding. Okay. In Judaism, the tree of life, what we call Eitz Hayim, Eitz Hayim, the tree of life, is represented by a fig tree. Now, when Jesus tells Nathaniel in John chapter 1, How do you know me? asked Nathaniel. And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. Jesus was not simply saying, I saw you under a literal fig tree. He did, but that's only the peshet. The pesher is, I saw you from the garden, from the creation, from the foundation of the world. I saw you under the fig tree. If you're born again, Jesus saw you under the fig tree. You understand? Those whom he foreknew. That's what he was saying. That is the Peshet. Now, we don't dismiss the Peshet. Jesus saw Nathaniel under a fig tree. But there is a Peshet. He's saying something much, much deeper. John is showing the world was made through him. Nothing came into being that was not made through Jesus. We connect Genesis 1 to 11 with John 1 to 4 with Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8 is Jesus and the creation. But we won't go into that now. Okay. So, one is to two as two is to three. Creation is to new creation as new creation is to recreation. God declares the end from the beginning. When we Approach the subject of the last days, always think in terms of this literary structure. Creation, new creation, recreation. When you understand the relationship, spiritually, theologically, and from a literary perspective, between creation and new creation, then you'll be in a position to understand the relationship between creation and new creation, and the recreation, the end of this present one, and it being recreated. You understand? Think in those terms. 
So we want to look at this from the point of view of Midrash. Find the Peshit, but see if there's a Pesher. Okay? Now, there's no Peshers in the epistles unless they tell you it is. For instance, Galatians 4, the two women, remember Sarah and Hagar? It tells you what it is. Epistles are like sanctified commentary. Epistles are commentary on other scripture. Whenever we study the Bible, we don't read scripture through the prism of the church fathers. They're not our commentaries. They're not our fathers. They're the fathers of Catholicism. They're the fathers of Protestantism. But they're not the fathers of the church. Referred to in Ephesians. We read the rest of scripture through the prism of the apostles. Through the epistles. The epistles are the Holy Spirit's commentary on the rest of the Bible. You want to know what Leviticus means? Read it in light of Hebrews. Okay? You want to know what the Gospels mean? Read it in light of Romans. Okay? You want to know what the Olivet Discourse means? Read it in light of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and so forth. And of uh, 2 Timothy 3 and so forth. The epistles explain things on the most basic level. The epistles are the arithmetic. The Gospels of the Discourse is the Algebra. Okay? The Apocalyptic Literature, Zechariah, Daniel, Revelation, that's the Calculus. Okay? Do the maths. Learn the math, then learn the Algebra, then you can do some Calculus. Now, I came from a science background when I was a kid. And if you like science, maybe you like physics, maybe you like calculus. This is something called a vector. Does anybody not know what a vector is? If you don't know what a vector is, tell me. You don't know what a vector is. You don't remember? All right. This is a... Alpha and Omega. Okay. And I'm going to be at point Alpha, and I'm going to shoot a bullet towards the target, which is Omega. Okay. That blue line is called the trajectory. The trajectory. The path the bullet takes. Okay. The speed at which the bullet travels is called... Velocity. Velocity. However, suppose instead of shooting a bullet, we were shooting a missile. Please pray for my family. Two of the missiles in Haifa fell six blocks from my wife's parents' house yesterday. And my son is in Israel at the moment. And some of the evangelists we support in Ahariah, uh, they're in the shelter and their neighborhood has been katushed and some of the neighbors have been killed. So we appreciate your prayers. I have family and friends in the present line of fire. Not easy for me to be here today telling you the truth because of the situation in the Middle East. But let's say it was a missile. Now, not a rocket, but a missile. A missile has a booster. But something happens. That'll give you a lift. But then the booster is also a launch pad for the next stage. 
<laughs> okay? You can actually go faster. That's, that was basically why it explained to me that Americans beat the Russians to the moon. The Russians tried to get a rocket that can go all the way up and all the way back. And the Americans understood it didn't work that way. You need to find a way to increase velocity in flight and to accelerate in flight faster than the Russians could do it with a one-stage rocket. So, I'm trying to get from Alpha to Omega with a rocket. It's going miles per second. Okay. But when I ignite the next stage, I begin to increase it exponentially. Now it's going miles per second per second. <laughs> you launch another stage, it's going miles per second per second. In other words, the closer you get to the target, the faster you approach it. This is the trajectory. The speed is the velocity. But not only is the speed increasing, the rate at which you are increasing the speed is increasing. That's a derivative. If you like calculus. <laughs> really moves, man. It's heavy stuff. Rocket science. Way above me, I'm too stupid. But that's how it works. It's basically a vector. Miles per second, miles per second, second, second. That vector explains prophecy. My wife's a math teacher. I'm not too clever. She could explain it better than me, but I believe the Lord showed it to me, but she could explain it better. She's smarter than me, which isn't saying much. But anyway, there are hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament Messianic prophecies about Jesus. Most of those were fulfilled in a 35-year period. Most of those were fulfilled in a three-and-a-half-year period. Most of those were fulfilled in a six-day period. You understand? When he comes back, the same thing happens. The closer we get to the return of Jesus, the faster we approach it. God is usually slow, never late. You wait centuries for the Jews to come back to Israel. Then in 1948 it happens. 1967 they get back to Jerusalem. You know? Now we know all these things we see happening even this morning on the news. Are setting the stage for Zechariah 12, for Daniel chapter 10 and so forth. We know the stage is being set as we speak. The closer you get, the faster you approach it. Like running to the wall, but the closer I get to the wall, the faster I run. It 
takes a long time for a few prophecies to be fulfilled. But a lot of prophecies are fulfilled in a very short period of time. You understand? It happens so quickly you can't keep up with it almost unless you know the word. Yes? That's correct. Correct. Now, these events of 70 AD do foreshadow what will happen at the end. Many things do, but in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus talks about 70 AD. These events of 70 AD, the Jews had a false sense of security and a false sense of victory. Although the warnings of Daniel and Jesus were taking place, their religious leaders were repeating the same mistakes they made the previous times. The fall of Samaria, 720 B.C., the fall and destruction of Jerusalem and the first temple, 585 B.C. The destruction of the second temple, 70 A.D. In each case, there's a surrounding. In each case, the women began eating their babies. Unspeakable stuff. You can read what happened in Josephus. If you read Josephus, you begin to see what happened in 70 AD. But in both Samaria, before the Assyrians conquered them, and in the days of Jeremiah, the Levites, the clergy, were telling people, the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord, we're going forth in victory, we're going to have blessing, hallelujah. The people accumulated false prophets in accordance with their own desires who were telling them what they wanted to hear. The true prophets who were warning them, like Jeremiah, were persecuted and rejected. And Baruch and those guys, they were rejected. It got so bad that even once Jeremiah was proven right, even when he was vindicated, they began turning against and rejecting Ezekiel. <laughs> Even though it was undeniable that their false prophets were wrong, and Jeremiah and them guys were right, those guys were right, they still kept doing it. Well, that happens again in 70 AD. All these signs that happened, they see all these, the, the, the temple gates, 24 people, the clothes swung open by itself. There was a asteroid shaped like a soared over Jerusalem. They saw visions of armies, even unsaved people, saw visions of armies coming in crowds. All these things were happening. And what Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded, okay, get out of there. The Romans withdrew inexplicably under uh, somebody called Simeon, who was a cousin of Jesus. After James was martyred, Simeon became the senior pastor in Jerusalem. And he remembered what his cousin Jesus told him. And they got out of there, and they went to a place called Pella. Not Petra, but Pella. Nobody knows. Josephus didn't know why. Nobody knows. Eusebius didn't know why. Nobody knew why the Romans withdrew temporarily. But it gave a period of respite, and the believers got out. 
The believers entered the tribulation, but not what we might call the great Supreme Court appointee, Sandra Day O'Connor, a Reagan Republican, wrote the decision that you had to take the Ten Commandments out of the judicial building in Alabama. That was a, a Reagan Republican. Now that that's happening, our freedom is going, and the privilege and protection Christians have had in the Protestant democracies is going. Jesus said to be hated by all nations for my name's sake. You know, you've got five Roman Catholics on the U.S. Supreme Court. Be careful. Anytime the Roman Catholic Church has had the means to persecute Christians, it has done so. Anytime. Had the political means to do so, it did so. However, there will be a colobo. The Lord will never allow us to experience his wrath. And he will say to Satan, so much, no further. He will use persecution to purify the church. He will use persecution to get the church to repent. He will use persecution to make the church long for his return instead of trusting in this world. God will use the persecution for his purpose to correct his own children. But once it has served his purpose, he'll get them out of here. You understand what I'm saying? Now, I don't expect you to agree with me. If you disagree, that is fine. I'm only telling you as best I can understand the word of God, I believe on the illumination of the Holy Spirit. I can say much more about this, but everything in the... We never base a doctrine on a type, but types, shadows, illustrate doctrine. Every single thing in the Bible, practically, that teaches about the rapture, the rescue of Lot, the exodus, the events of 70 A.D., okay, Everything that teaches about the rapture, that foreshadows it, shows God's people entering tribulation, but escaping great tribulation. It shows his people going into it, but being rescued out of it, and not experiencing his wrath. Did Lot and his family have a tough time? Remember, surrounded? The house was surrounded? Those two angels who rescued Lot and his family are like the two witnesses in Revelation. They got them out of there. That was another subject. Jesus said he was in the field not look back. Well, Lot's wife looked back. You understand? God will use the opposition, the persecution, to stop Laodicea, to correct Laodicea. Because it's hope, Laodicea hopes in this world and is blind to its own state. The problem with persecution is the people don't need to be persecuted. It gets it first and worst. But it separates the true believers from the false ones. It purifies the church. As Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Okay. Once it serves its purpose, God will get his people out of here. He won't let Satan go any further. And when he pours his wrath out on the kingdom of Antichrist, we won't be here. Now, to the best of my own understanding... This takes place between, I'm, 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 I'm virtually positive, this takes place between the sixth and seventh seal. The seventh chapter of Revelation is the rapture, resurrection, to my understanding. Bear in mind, many of my closest friends, people who I respect and value in the ministry, do not share my view. To me, it's a matter for prayer, for discussion. But I stand firmly that this is what's going to happen, this is what it's going to be. The rapture won't happen until we know who the Antichrist is. If you have a different view, I have no problem with that. Probably half my friends 
don't agree with me. But they're still my friends. And I hope you'll still be my friend. To be perfectly honest, I would love to be proved wrong. But I'm quite sure I'm right. Yet nobody's infallible. Except for one. There'll be a Colobo. The rest. 720, 585, there was a false, they thought things were going to get better. They were being misled by their leaders. Well, today it's the same thing. People are saying this. Kingdom now theology, we're going forth in victory, we're going to conquer the world, we're not going to suffer, you're a king's kid. <laughs> the church is buying the same line, the same subscribing to the same pack of lies that happened in 720, 585, and in 70. Those are them, so 70 A.D. Teach what the end will be like. Things will seem to be good. Things will seem to be getting better. But then all of a sudden, those who are not forewarned will never be prepared. Again, always, if you're forewarned, you know what to do. Those who are forewarned will know what to do. It says in Daniel, those who know their God will take action. Now that is the background, in a nutshell, of how to look at eschatology. I will leave you with one more thing before the break. When you read eschatology, remember, the prophets prophesied for three time periods. They prophesied for their own time, for the first coming of Christ and for the return of Christ. They prophesied for three time periods, sometimes in the same verse, sometimes in the same breath. The prophecies have a double reference. Okay? We have to work out what is for their own time, what is for the first coming, and what is for the second coming of Christ? And what is for some combination? The prophecies of Jeremiah about the destruction of the temple are both for 585 and for 70 AD and for the end of the world. Okay. Second thing we have to understand, replacement theology is on. Biblical. We have to know what is for Israel and the Jews, what is for the church, and what is for both. The reason, the reason you see Jacob and Israel in the Old Testament when it talks about the last days, where it says Jacob and Israel. Jacob is always ethnocentric. Jacob always has something to do with the Jews. The time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is always specific to the Jews, not the church. Okay? Israel can be the Jews, but can also in some context, apply to the church. Not to the negation of the Jews, but it can be for both. 
Jacob is always Judeo-centric, as best I can understand the scripture. Okay? That's why you see Jacob and Israel, Jacob and Israel. Not all who are Israel will say they are Israel. Okay. Unbelieving Jews are cut off from Israel. Jacob. Now, remember Jacob wrestled to the end of the night? The night is the most common metaphor in the Bible for the Great Tribulation. Watchman, watchman, how far is the night? Is he coming like a <coughs> second watch of the night or the third? He's coming like a thief in the night. Work while you have the light. The night will come. No man can work. The bridegroom comes for the bride in the Song of Solomon in the night. Matthew 25, the bridegroom comes in the night. Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. That was Jesus, the Christophany. Remember at Peniel, the book of Jabbok? Jacob wrestled to the end of the night. Jacob goes through the whole tribulation. Time of Jacob's trouble. You see Jacob, something about the Jews. You see Israel, it's about the Jews, but how does it apply to the church? So we're always looking at this. What's the peshet? What's the pesher? What's for the first coming? What's for the second coming? What's for both? What's for the Jews? What's for the church? What is for both? Those are the fundamental questions. When I was a kid in New York, there was a football player named Vince Lombardi, football coach. Coached the New York Giants to victory. To the championship, it was before there was a Super Bowl. And in his biography, he had this idea that if the Giants ever lost a game, or if they even won a game but didn't play as well as he thought, he'd have them on the football field early the next morning, Monday morning, and they would practice things like blocking. <laughs> they would practice basic things. Okay. Once you get the basic things down, the sky's the limit. Always go back to the most basic, fundamental things. Always go back to the basic things. I watched a documentary about U.S. Navy SEALs in the, in the invasion of Grenada and how they were trapped, and they were surrounded, and they couldn't get out. The way they got out was they went back to the most basic thing. They swam. These guys were trained. They, 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 they actually swam three days, six miles out. How can you swim for three days, six miles out, miles, in shark-infested water? That was the most basic thing about being a SEAL, was knowing, not knowing how to shoot, first know how to swim really good, <laughs> really well. <laughs> They just swam, and, sw and they got out of there. One guy did it with a couple of bullets in him. Amazingly, fit, physically fit person. But always go back to the basic things. What's the peshet? What's the peshet? What's Jacob? What's Israel? What's for the Jews? What's for the church? What's for the first coming? What's for the second coming? What's for both? Always go back to the fundamentals. If you always go back to the reference point, you're not going to get lost. You know what I mean? If, 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 if you're in a mirror maze, if, if, if you're in a conundrum, if you're in something like that, if there is one central point, a meeting point, and you can get there from anywhere in the conundrum or in the maze, you're not going to get lost. You might become misguided, but you won't get lost. If you go back to the basics, 
you will never get lost. You might get misguided, but you won't get lost. You go back to the basics and you begin another way. Go back to those basic things. Understand those basics when you study eschatology. Now, I'm sorry to have bored you with all this stuff, but it's a necessary background. I assure you the next session I do will be more upbeat.